0: Well, we are working through the Gospel of Luke, and this week we come to the birth of John the Baptist. And this is the first of, of two miraculous births in Luke's Gospel, the second, of course, being the birth of the Messiah. And as we've seen so far in the series, Luke, through intentional use of, of language and images and echoes of the Old Testament, wants us to see that... The promise to Abraham, and really to Eve, that the Redeemer uh, that a Redeemer would come to make all things new, saving his people from sin and death, and bringing justice to the world. Well, that promise was coming to fulfillment, and that fulfillment would be through a Davidic king, that is an heir of David, who would bring about a new and definitive exodus. All of those things are at play already in chapter 1 of Luke, and we certainly see them at play in our passage today. So we're going to take it up with chapter 1, verse 57, with the birth of John the Baptist and his father Zechariah's response to that. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son, and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child and they would have called him Zachariah after his father, but his mother answered, uh, not he shall be called John, Oh, excuse me, his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, Blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about uh, through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied and said, said, being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days and you child will be called the prophet of the most high for you will go before the lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our god whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this word that seems ancient to us because it is, and it is in fulfillment of even older ancient words that you promised to people like Eve. Abraham, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lord, we thank you that you make good on your word. We thank you that you are the one directing the course of history, and we thank you for this particular word and how beautiful it is and how deep it goes and shows us how you have always been working to bring about the redemption of your people in this world. We thank you in our Savior's name, Jesus. Amen. Okay, Uh, well, verse 57 tells us that At least nine months had passed since Zachariah was visited by the angel Gabriel and told that he would have a son and here Elizabeth, his wife, had now given birth to that son. So even though Elizabeth had kept her pregnancy a secret for five months or so, eventually the reality of her pregnancy became apparent and this elderly barren woman gave birth to her son and in turn the community came out to rejoice with her just as Gabriel said people would. And notice that Luke says that they, that is the community, her family, had heard that the Lord had shown mercy to her. Well, if you remember, that's a reference to verse 25 and how people had assumed she had sinned in such a way that God punished her with barrenness. It's similar to the question the disciples asked about a man born blind in John chapter nine, when they asked who sinned, the blind guy or his parents. So the common assumption was uh, that because of someone's sin, uh, the handicaps or hardships people endured, like the blind man or uh, Elizabeth, maybe those, those afflictions were judgments or punishments from God because of their sin. It's, it's different, uh, but, but kind of uh, akin to how Christians will assume God is punishing them when bad things happen to them, as if God makes use of karma. Well, if God treated us like that, if karma was a thing, there would be very little good in our lives, Uh, let alone karma can't make sense of the reality of how God often makes use of hardships, sometimes very hard things to grow us in Him, like dark storm clouds that bring life-giving rain, or in the case of Elizabeth, barrenness that led to miraculous birth of John. So as good as this uh, birth was for Elizabeth, as we saw two weeks ago, there were far greater reasons for rejoicing over her son than her neighbors, at least initially, assumed. The great mercies she had personally received extended well beyond her her social difficulties, and they were uh, very difficult, even as those same neighbors could recognize that this birth Well, it was highly unusual. Verse 59 tells us that on the eighth day the community came together to circumcise the child. And this is a detail that Luke also repeats with Jesus in 2.21, and it's worth taking a moment to ask why. Circumcision, which is the mark of the covenant, was given to all males born into Israel. In fact, God had commanded that with Abraham, and it was to be given to Gentile converts as well, and was to be done with each successive generation. With Moses, the Levitical law stipulated that sons were to be circumcised on the eighth day after their birth. So this, of course, marked them off as members and recipients of the grace and benefits of the covenant with Abraham, and rightly set them apart as God's people In communion with him this is why the promise is for you and your children this is why they did this now circumcision as a sign look forward to the promised seed of the woman which in turn was taken up and given specificity in the covenant with abraham so what was promised to eve is continued with abraham and given uh more specifics on what that would look like so so circumcision (laughs) Uh, was a visceral and tangible reminder that from this lineage, think about this, from these human bodies, God would raise up a redeemer who would crush the head of the serpent. This is why before launching into Jesus' ministry proper, Luke traces Jesus' ancestry back through the exile to Babylon, uh, to David, to Judah, to Jacob, to Abraham, to Shem, to Noah, to Seth, and ultimately to Adam. That circumcision was performed on the eighth day was an important part of the sign too. The role of the eighth day shows up actually quite a bit in the Mosaic Law. So for example, uh, the firstborn of the household's animals, the very firstborn of the household's animals were to be offered up to God on the eighth day after its birth. On the eighth day after a leper had been uh, declared clean, he would offer sacrifices to God as part of his purification and restoration to the community with the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles as it's called, or Sukkot as it's it's called among Jewish uh, communities, which was a a joyful week of feasting in the fall commanded by God as one of the three yearly pilgrimage uh, Feast days or, or festival weeks, uh, after seven days of feasting and sacrifices, Israel was to have a holy convocation. This is what we're doing too, by the way. This is a holy convocation, uh, meeting together of everyone with God on the eighth day. So as you, you probably know, God created the heavens and the earth in six days, and on the seventh day, the Sabbath, he rested, and in turn, he commanded humanity to live by this pattern and structure our life and time in light of Him. So living by this pattern of six days and a Sabbath rest is is both really a confession of faith, and you can learn a lot uh, by how people structure their time and and who or what they actually worship by how they, they treat six days and Sabbath, but also it's how God created us to thrive and to flourish. It's for our good. So the eighth day then, the eighth day within Israelite life Look forward to new creation when God would redeem his creation and humanity from sin and death. And you can see that with all those various examples I, I listed there. So, so circumcision looked forward to the seed of the woman, the promised ancestor of Abraham who would redeem the world. And in turn, that redeemer would usher in new creation on the eighth day. Virtually every prophecy I've read from Isaiah today looks forward to that. This is why some in the early church, and Martha, Martin Luther spoke about this, this, this too, saw Christian worship as fulfillment of what the eighth day circumcision looked forward to, as interpreted in light of Jeremiah 31 and the new covenant promise where God would circumcise his people's hearts. So the giving of the Spirit, the circumcision of the heart, and the new covenant are all part of of the inbreaking of the new creation. And so, so New Covenant worship, which is what we're doing, is inaugurated <clears throat> with the resurrection of Jesus on the third day, which was the first day of the week. But it's also tied in with the circumcision of the heart on the eighth day, which also was on the first day of the week. Are you following the math here? So every Sunday, which marks the beginning of a new week of six days plus Sabbath rest, Christians ought to see our worship in light of both the resurrection of Jesus on the third day and the beginning of new creation on the eighth day of which circumcision looked forward to. So, every Sunday worship is founded on Jesus' resurrection from the dead, and in turn, with the inbreaking of new creation, complete with circumcised hearts through the Spirit. It's why, for example, Paul insists in Galatians both that circumcision doesn't count for anything anymore, baptism has replaced it, and why, in turn, we must understand ourselves rightly as new creations in union with Christ through the Spirit. So, case in point. After John and Jesus, Luke doesn't mention circumcision again. And why would he? Why would he? The old covenant is over. And the new covenant has come. Everything that circumcision looked forward to is now finding its completion and its fulfillment in this moment. That's the point. Well, we read in verse 59 that the community came together for this, this important sign and ritual, what modern Jews would call a bris, and they, they assumed that the child's name would be Zachariah after his father, which was a pretty fair assumption for the times. But Elizabeth said, no, 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 his name is, his name is John. Now, remember, John was the name given by God, and it means God has been gracious. So unlike today where we, we choose uh, unique names for our kids. This was highly unusual for the times, and so they, they asked Zechariah uh, for the child's name. And remember, he had been struck mute by Gabriel for his disbelief, and he wrote down, his name is John. Now keep in mind, Zechariah's priestly Levitical lineage, and thus his family name, absolutely mattered. It absolutely mattered, and chances are his father's name was Zachariah, and he too had served in the temple before him, but also that as the father, he had, like Adam, the responsibility for naming his son, and thus, by breaking family precedent, the community was completely taken aback. This is just a cultural no-no, really a very strange and weird thing to do. So upon writing this down, his name is John, Zachariah regained his speech. Or as Luke says it, his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed. If he wanted to make it just plain Jane, he would have said, and he could speak again. But he didn't. He used very specific language, which was a clear anticipation of Pentecost. And he spoke, blessing God. And we'll come to that, what he actually said here in a few minutes. So in a way, both Zechariah, get the picture now. Zechariah and Elizabeth serve in a little way as, as living symbols of what God was now doing in and through and for Israel. Just as Israel had been barren of life for centuries and in turn God had been silent for 400 years, Malachi being the last prophet, now God and his faithfulness was like Ezekiel's vision of, of the dry bones, bringing life from death and speaking a new word of fulfillment from silence through a prophet." Now, of course, this moment freaks their neighbors out, and what was already not exactly a run-of-the-mill bris, complete with an elderly woman who looked more like the kid's grandma and her mute priest of a husband, had now become, well, extraordinary uh, to say the least, or to use common modern parlance, this was bonkers. It was just crazy that this stuff was happening. And as you can imagine, news quickly spread about the event and Luke tells, tells us that the people laid the events up in their heart and pondered it thinking, what then will this child be? And this is good, right? It, it shows that you're, they were paying attention like, did you hear, a, are you serious? What does that mean? What could this possibly be about? So they, they're not apathetic, this is good. And as we've mentioned in the past, there was a real sense of anticipation at this time that God was on the verge of acting in a significant way to bring about the Messiah. So these people rightly wondered what might become of a child born in such a unique and yet biblical pattern. After all, these people knew the stories of Abraham and Sarah or Elkanah and Hannah so who the son of Elizabeth and Zechariah might be, what he might use be by God, that was an open question that they wanted to see happen. So Luke tells us that the hand of the Lord was with John, a link, really a callback to how God was with his people in Egypt, among other people throughout uh, the Old Testament. And it's a link uh, that Luke will continue to make in the very next section. So Luke's answer uh, to the people's question what will this kid be? What will he do? Is found with Zechariah's blessing and, and prophecy that really reads like a collection uh, from prophecies across the Old Testament. But before we look at some of Zechariah's thoughts here, we should know just how much Luke highlights the work of the Spirit up to this point. We're so used to the Holy Spirit uh, and use of the New Testament that it, it doesn't strike us the way it should. The Holy Spirit is all over this in the way that he really wasn't uh, in the Old Testament. So if you just track back through the chapter, and by the way, we're still in chapter one, right? If you just track back through the chapter, here's what you find. John would be filled with the spirit from the womb. The spirit descends upon Mary, Mary, like the spirit at creation, or like God's presence with the tabernacle, or Sinai, or the temple, causing her to conceive Jesus. When Elizabeth, Receive Mary into her home. Elizabeth was filled with the Spirit and was given eyes to see what God had done in and through and for Mary, and in turn that Mary was the mother of the Son of God. And Elizabeth declared it like a prophet. And now here with Zechariah, he too is filled with the Spirit and declares the meaning of John's miraculous birth to his neighbors. So, like with Pentecost, Zechariah's mouth is opened. And his tongue is loosed, and and through the Spirit, he declares the gospel to God's people in anticipation of exactly the sort of thing that his son was going to do. And all of these actions of the Spirit are an indication that with Jesus, the new creation of the kingdom of God was breaking into the world, and God was truly with his people. Think about this. like Jesus is in the womb. And already the kingdom is starting to spring to life among Israel. And as you go through Zechariah's benediction, and that's what it really is, it's his good word, his blessing uh, of God in response to what God had done, what you find is that he brings together themes from the Exodus, from the covenant with Abraham, from the covenant with David, and in turn ties together both really a political salvation like what you see in Mary's song in the sense that that God will bring real justice to this world even as He offers forgiveness for sins, both of which He did in the Exodus. So in verse 68, Zechariah says that the Lord God of Israel has visited and redeemed His people. And this is exactly The language used with the Exodus, among other places in the Old Testament. So with the Exodus, God had remembered his people, heard their cry, visited them in their affliction, and redeemed them from sin and death. He tabernacled with them in the wilderness, and now an even greater tabernacle is among them because he is doing something even greater than what he did in Egypt. In verse 69, Zechariah says that God has raised up a horn of salvation, a real political power in the house of David. So the, the promised heir to the throne of the covenant God made with David in 2 Samuel 7, Luke is saying he's here, this guy is here. In verse 70, all of this is in fulfillment of what his holy prophets prophets proclaimed, And we we can see the hope and anticipation of this moment, really from Abraham through Malachi. And the result of this, as he says in verses 71 through 74, is that God was fulfilling his promise of mercy that he had made to Eve, Abraham, Moses, David, and Jeremiah, which would result in being delivered from the hands of their enemies, like how Israel was delivered from Pharaoh in Egypt so that, and this is verses 74 and 75, his people might serve God without fear and holiness and righteousness all their days. So as an aside, you are here worshiping the triune God filled with his spirit and you have no fear. You have been set apart in righteousness and holiness. So when you look at the Exodus, which really serves as the model for salvation in the Bible, God does two specific things. First, God conquers Israel's real-world enemies in the form of both Pharaoh and Egypt at at large, but also the spiritual evil that stood behind Pharaoh. and, And in turn, too, he redeemed Israel by atoning for the nation's sin. That's what Passover was about. So it's worth noting that that Israel, though an oppressed people, was not without sin. You know, these days the assumption is that by definition, an oppressed people are an innocent people. And as bad as living under oppression and tyranny is, it doesn't make that group of people sinless. So for example, the worship of the golden calf didn't come out of nowhere. It didn't come out of nowhere. No, no, Israel had taken up with pagan worship in Egypt at some point in the generations after Joseph's death. So Israel's sin, it still needed to be atoned for. And the purpose of Israel's salvation was so that Israel might be set apart to worship and serve God. And of course, this is exactly what God tells Moses. And Moses in turn tells this to Pharaoh, like this is what God wants. And that's in Exodus four and five. And it leads to Pharaoh hardening his heart refusing to let Israel go, and making Israel's life much harder. So when you think about the gospel and what Jesus came to do, you need to see it as Luke and the other gospel writers, let alone Paul, sees it. It's a better and definitive exodus, and you can see this in at least three ways. There's a lot to this, but you can see it in at least three ways. First, fundamental to the gospel is God's promise to conquer all his enemies and chief among these, these enemies are sin and death. Sin and death. So no matter who you are, sin and death are your primary problems. They are fundamental. The fundamental problems and enemies you face. So that, that promise of conquering involves bringing peace and justice to this world in regards to both real human and spiritual power. So both say Satan but yet Hitler and, and every evil and abusive authority from the greatest to the least are, are to be judged. But especially the great enemies of sin and death are the ones that are dealt with. Second, included in the gospel is the author, offer of, of forgiveness, which as Zechariah points out in verse 77, is a key a key element of what the Messiah would do and what John would point people towards, the forgiveness of sin that is on offer in the Messiah. So for example, even with the Exodus, without the atonement for sin, despite being oppressed by Egypt, Israel was still mired in sin and could not have life together with God. The atonement for sin and the offer of forgiveness is foundational to life with God, otherwise you might be politically liberated from oppression, but you will still die in your sin and be separated from God. So, third, the point of the Exodus was not merely political liberation, though that's there, uh, and it's not merely like a spiritual liberation where I'm just free to be me. No, it's the restoration of life with God, which includes worship and service to Him. It's it's to get back to what Adam. Rejected. It's a life, as, as Paul and Jeremiah talk about it, lived in union with the Son and the power of the Spirit in a resurrected and redeemed body, in a redeemed, restored, and glorified creation. So God's salvation is always for the purpose of communion with Him and, in turn, with each other. Now, there's... there's there is so much more we could point out with Zachariah's benediction, but there's only so much time. So what I want to, to park on for our remaining moments are the imagery of sunrise that he uses towards the end of his, his benediction. He says uh, this line there, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace, That's such a critical phrase. It takes in so much of the imagery of the Old Testament. So starting from right from Genesis 1, sun, moon, and stars are created for the purpose of timekeeping, the sun to rule the day, the moon to rule the night. So for example, Israel's festival calendar was set according to the lunar cycle. So the moon served really as the chief timekeeper for Israel's life. And throughout scripture, sun, moon, and stars also serve as symbols for both human and spiritual powers. And you can see this like with, with Joseph's dreams where he sees his parents and brothers as the sun, moon, and stars. You can see this in modern times with national flags. You know, uh, For example, even our, our own flag has 50 stars representing the 50 states or the 50 powers. But you can also see this when Satan is likened to the morning star. This is especially apparent in Revelation and it's why, for example, God warns Israel and Canaan not to worship the sun, moon, or stars. It's why a magnificent star attends to Jesus' birth. It's the announcement of not just a king but a spiritual and political heavyweight that will change the world and it was so spectacular. The Gentile elites came looking to worship that person. They knew that star represented real power, human power, divine power. You see, ancient people, contrary to the way modern people think about them, ancient people were not stupid. They were not uneducated. They were very aware of spiritual beings in ways that our culture over the last 400 years has become willfully oblivious to. The Egyptians knew some power stood behind the sun. It's simply that in their sinful rebellion against the true God, they gave their worship over to Ra instead of Yahweh. And this becomes especially apparent when God darkens the sun and Pharaoh still rebelled against him. As Romans 1 makes clear, ancient people, like most people outside of Western culture, they could recognize that God had made the world because all of creation declares him. But in their foolishness and darkened mind, they chose to worship the creation instead of its creator. People do this in America too. They don't call themselves religious, but they are. They just do it in the name of science or the environment or gender or sexual identity or race or politics or a thousand different things. Even with what God says to Abraham, that his descendants would be like the stars, that doesn't merely mean that his descendants would be so numerous that he couldn't count them, though that's clearly true. It also points to their future rule over all creation. After all, as God's Emma's bearer, we were intended to have dominion over this world and our salvation and redemption restores that aspect of our humanity to us. So throughout the Old Testament, the sun is often a symbol of God himself and you can see that in places like Psalm 19. God is the one who created the light, the great lights of the sun and the moon, the lesser lights of the stars. He made them to be timekeepers. He made them to be symbols as well. He made the light, including the most powerful lights, like the sun, and they are living symbols of him. So when you take in the sun, for example, in all its glory, its life-giving, yet dangerous heat, you are meant to think of the one who made it, who made the sun, and, and equate it to him. So the sun is not merely a huge flaming gas ball. That's how modern people and their stunted materialism see it. No, the sun is a magnificent created symbol declaring the glory of the one who made it. Again, that's, that's Romans 1. This is why John says Jesus is both the word of God and the light of the world, both of which are, are direct links to Genesis 1. And this is, this is easy enough to understand. You know, with Jesus, the light of God was coming into the world and like we so often see in Scripture with the sunrise. So, Think of the timing of Passover. Think of the timing of the crossing of the Red Sea. Think of the resurrection of Jesus. Salvation comes in the morning after a long darkness. But again, if you consider that Israel's calendar was structured around the lunar cycle on purpose by God, and Israel herself is often likened to the moon in both testaments. A people that were once in darkness, walking by the light of the moon, have now seen the coming of the dawn and the rising of the sun. Salvation is at hand. So for good reason then, Christian festivals and holy days were purposely, not structured around the lunar cycle, but the solar cycle of 365.25 day calendar. So the date of Christmas was set not because Jesus was born, on December 25th, hey, spoiler alert, he was probably born in the spring at some point, but because of the darkness of winter. Advent is a time of waiting in darkness. It remembers Israel's long waiting through the night for the Messiah to appear. It's why Christmas Eve is rightly a candle-light service. It's also why Easter happens in the spring It's celebrated at the time of year when you can literally see the earth in new birth and resurrection. So the early church wasn't taking over pagan holidays. Sorry, History Channel, that's not right. No, no, no. The early church knew the Old Testament and the significance of the New Testament and they wanted the rhythm of their year, the way they structured their time like Israel before them to reflect that. And so we, as inheritors of all that, are people who have seen the light and live in light of that sunrise, who live in light of the risen sun. We are the people who enjoy the gift of the Spirit and already participate in the new creation complete with the promised, circumcised hearts of Jeremiah 31. So, that's a lot. All of that is at play in Luke chapter 1. And we've just now finished Luke chapter 1. There's a lot going on in this gospel. And Luke ends this section by telling us that that John grew up and became strong in spirit and was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. And it's, it's really kind of a bit of a cliffhanger here as Luke invites us to consider what other prophets, what other important people were filled with the spirit and ministered in the wilderness? And what does that mean? Again, here's another spoiler. There are some in the Old Testament. And they do serve as models for John the Baptist. So what is there to be seen in the coming weeks with this guy? And what is he pointing to? Well, more on that to come as we go through the book of Luke. Let me pray for us and we will close our time together. Heavenly Father, Your word is incredible. And what you have written in your word, the literary mastery that points us to see all of creation in light of you, that points us to see these important symbols and signs that you gave to your people, pointing to the redemption that you would give in your son, are beautiful and just mind blowing. I thank you for this word because it points to an even greater reality that we experience all the time but are often oblivious to. That you are at work in this world, that you have set us apart as your people, that you have given us hearts that are circumcised by the Spirit. And that we enjoy new creation already, even as we are awaiting on the redemption of our bodies. Lord, may we be a people that walk in light of that. That we are an Advent people looking forward to your second coming when Christ will make all things new and complete. We pray all of this in his name. Amen.